and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. What do you need to do that? Well, I think you need a Bible. You can't do this without the Bible. If someone comes along and says to you, what is it that makes you so a Christian? Well, you start with the Bible, don't you? And then you need a little bit of basic Bible knowledge. This is what my Bible teaches me. Thank you for joining us today on Let the Bible Speak. This is Pastor Ian Gallagher. It is my privilege to come to the radio each and every day, morning 5 a.m. and evening 5 p.m., to bring you the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And I pray that there will be words of comfort and words of grace for your soul, and that today the Lord will speak to your heart. We come to part two of the message on happiness in suffering. The Bible says, 1 Peter 3, that we are not to suffer as a murderer or an evildoer, but to suffer as a Christian. That means we're suffering for Christ, that is, in a cause, and that we are to do so with a clear conscience and with counted all joy when we are called to suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, just let's begin a little bit today on the subject of prayer. Uh, that will come later in our main message on suffering as a Christian. But I mentioned yesterday that uh, praying is a strange business. And strange indeed it is when we come to seek God in prayer. Prayer is never for the selfish. The greatest prayers in the Bible and the greatest prayers of God's servants are not for me, myself, and I, but for the need of the world and for men in the world. This is a real prayer ministry for the needs of the hungry souls around us. It might be a father praying for his family, a wife for her husband, a child praying for parents, or a friend at school. God has brought a friend into your life, and you have nothing to give him, nothing spiritually, and you're constrained to go to your friend, your God, for help. Now, do you get the picture? And the picture is of this man going to his friend at midnight to ask for bread, because a traveler has come to him, and he has nothing to set before him. The purpose, of course, is that the uh, Christian needs encouragement. And it's not for naught that the Bible is filled with exhortations to continue in prayer, not to faint, but to pray without ceasing. And we're told in this story in Luke 11 that God, uh, this man, will give him bread, not because he is his friend, but because of his importunity. He keeps on asking. And there is a tendency in us all to pray for a bit and then to come to the conclusion that it is with no profit. One of the best encouragements is to realize that prayer is of God's making. If we think of for one moment that it is man's persistence, then we will never get off the ground. Our praying will have no wings. Now, we have in this passage 
Luke 11, the great Magna Carta text of prayer. Ask, and it shall be given unto you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. I want you to notice the breadth of these assurances. There is no limitation to what God will give to his people, to those who learn to pray. Also note the depth of these assurances. These are the words of the Lord Jesus, and he said, I say unto you, ask, seek, knock. The authorship of these promises gives great depth to their meaning. Now, if they were spoken by the prime minister or the queen, you would have doubts. Nor are they mere principles. They are like blank checks with the signature of the Lord on them. And this is your checkbook of faith. Do you believe? Will you personally draw upon this bank of heaven with the check that is made out unto you? Now, you're listening today to Let the Bible Speak, and we're turning in a few seconds here to our message on the suffering as a Christian. We're turning to First Peter chapter 3 today, and I trust that you will be ready to hear the Lord's Word. At the end of the program, we'll be giving you details of our address, website, phone number, magazine, CDs available, but now we're turning to our message, and I trust the Lord will speak to your heart. Again, I thank you for listening in, and if I can be of any personal encouragement, be sure to be in touch with me here. Now, this statement of Peter here, sanctify the Lord in your heart, is actually a quote from the book of Isaiah. And if you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11, let's pick up on what the, the, the prophet of the Lord was saying to the people of Israel here. Isaiah 8 and verse 11. Let's just get the, the Old Testament context of this manner of speaking. Sanctify the Lord in your heart. Isaiah 8 verse 11. For the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people. You see the old tension? It's never any different for the, for the believer. The way of the world is not the way of the child of God. There is a distinction. There's a difference. And there's a separation. You're not to walk in the way of the people of this world. Verse 12, say ye not a confederacy. In other words, there can be no compromise, no union, no getting together and saying, well, the war's over now with the world. We can all be one. To all them to whom this people say a confederacy, neither fear ye their fear nor be afraid. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. You see, there's only one option. It's either the fear of man rules your heart, or the fear of the Lord ruling your heart. And if you let go the fear of the Lord immediately, you will succumb to the fear of man. You will make some kind of agreement, some attempt to cross the bridge, the differences, and be like the world. And then the promise in verse 14, and he shall be for a sanctuary. This is worship now. 
And in your life, if you are sanctifying the Lord and worshiping his name, honoring him and giving him all the glory, this is the answer to the worldliness and the pressures of the world that drag down so many professing Christians. This is the cause of compromise in churches. Let's get more like the world. And the more we're like the world, the easier time the church will have and the more successful we will be. And uh, we end up losing that hallowing of God's name. And that's why in many, I cannot say all, but in many contemporary churches, the Lord's name is just lowered down to the level of carnal men. Be not afraid of their terror. 1 Peter chapter 3, 14. Happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror. Well, what are we talking about here? What kind of terror are we talking about? Now, if you were under the Spanish Inquisition or some other period of awful persecution against Christians, there would be absolute terror when you have soldiers coming to your home by night, bursting down the door, carrying off those who profess the name of the Lord Jesus and leave the children screaming, Mommy, Daddy, where are you going? And you're off to some dark prison cell and you're isolated and worn down by hunger and famine and by some forms of torture nigh to death. There would be terror. First century Christians endured that as well. What about you and me? Are we terrorized by the world? Are we so afraid of the world that we don't open our mouths? That we're afraid to live right and obey the Lord in every one of his ways. We're to let the fear of the Lord rule our hearts and not the fear of men. And when the fear of the Lord rules your heart, this is your testimony. This is your testimony. We are delivered from the fear of men. They can harm our bodies. They can shame our names, but they cannot destroy our souls. That has to be the confidence and the conduct of the Christian, the fear of God. We as New Testament Christians tonight in Cloverdale are called to fear God more than men. Now, in the workplace and in school, that's, that's easier said than done. But that's real Christianity. And it is a call to be witnesses, even when it costs us. So Peter addresses this whole matter of suffering for righteousness. Happy are ye? But also, we are to be ruled by the fear of the Lord. Number three, verse 15, middle of the verse. Peter says, you can give an answer of your hope that lies within you. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. What do you need to do that? Well, I think you need a Bible. You can't do this without the Bible. If someone comes along and says to you, what is it that makes you so a Christian? Well, you start with the Bible, don't you? And then you need a little bit of basic Bible knowledge. 
This is what my Bible teaches me. I'm not just a, a weirdo who is following a different path because my mind is in the clouds. No, I'm a Christian because the Bible teaches me certain things. It tells me, number one, that I'm a created being. It tells me that God is a God of holiness, and there's going to be a day of judgment. And the hope that is in me is the hope that one day I'll stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And of course, it may take a lot of work to get that message over to the person who hasn't a clue of the gospel, but that's where you start. I live differently because I have a hope. And this hope is a Bible-based hope, and it is a hope for eternity. And by taking your stand, this hope gives you many opportunities to be a witness for the Lord Jesus. And you know, the world is looking for answers. The world is looking for answers. There is a people all around us out there who are just stabbing in the dark for the answers to life. And a living Christian, as I've often said, the greatest thing that can happen to a darkened sinner is to come into personal contact with a living Christian who has this hope of the gospel, who is standing up for the Lord Jesus. And as Paul and Silas were in jail, and the earthquake erupted, and the prisoner officer came and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The greatest honor that can ever happen to you as a Christian is to someone and says, What is it to be a Christian? What do I need to do to have the faith, the peace, the blessedness that you are enjoying? That is immediately a reward for your stand for the Lord, and then to have the privilege of sharing the gospel. But if you don't take your stand, if you're not willing to endure the stigma of the world, how is that ever going to happen? Number four, verse 15 again, the end of the verse, Peter says you can display Christ-like meekness in suffering. With meekness and fear. Now, the fear of the Lord makes you ready to answer men without fear. And your fearlessness, the underlying foundation of confidence, assurance, and certainty that the Bible gives you, that the gospel gives you, means that you can answer calmly, reasonably, in a friendly manner, in a friendly tone, and your meekness and reasonableness in itself becomes a living witness to the lost who know nothing of the Lord. Think of how the Lord Jesus responded to the scorn and the bitter rancor of men. The Lord Jesus, when he was opposed, he was strong and resolute, but not bitter or threatening. There was no rushed agenda, no threats to men, calling people to give heed to the facts, willing to give people time to think, 
and space to change their mind, realizing that repentance is the gift of God, and something perhaps as new Christians we really need to learn, you can't argue someone into being a Christian. I've tried it. It doesn't work. You can't argue people into Christianity. You can witness to them. You can point out their errors. But it's not power of persuasion by mere debate. Salvation's of the Lord. You sow the seed. You plant the truth. And you pray the Lord to make it grow. And so that meek attitude, that gentle, slow, kind approach is the way that God uses the witness of the Christian. Now, it's better. That's what Peter said. It's better that ye suffer for well-doing when you do so with a spirit of meekness. But if you turn the Inquisition around and say, well, if you're going to shoot me, I'll shoot you. If you're going to curse me, I'll curse you. No. The Lord has taught us to turn the other cheek. The Lord has taught us to heap coals of love upon the heads of our enemies. If a man asks for our coat, give him two. It is by that kindness that we win and draw men and women to the truth. What do we do in the midst of suffering? We show meekness. We're like the shepherd who goes after the stray sheep. The shepherd calls the sheep by voice, but if the sheep doesn't listen, he goes after it. He catches it, and he carries it home. Has the Lord not done that with us? That's the spirit that Peter is recommending here. Another you can maintain a good conscience. You'll notice that in verse 16, having a good conscience. Now, here we see the power of insult. Whereas they speak of you as evildoers. And the truth is, in your own good conscience, you see, a good conscience responds differently to a bad conscience. If we have a bad conscience and we're full of guilt and full of shame, then obviously we're going to run and do the wrong thing. But when you suffer for righteousness and for good, and you do so with a good conscience, then you can shrug it off you realize the person doesn't understand. These accusations are ill-founded. And even the worst slander of men, you can just take it to the Lord. And even multiplied lies, you can press on with that inner witness, the inner testimony. You are standing for righteousness and for truth. Now let me ask the question, how much is a good conscience worth? How much, what value can you put upon a good conscience? Well, I looked up in the New Testament five places 
and there are only five places where this term good conscience appears. And I looked up to see what value uh, the Bible or these uh, New Testament authors puts upon it. Paul the Apostle, he uh, spoke of it as his manner of life. Earnestly beholding the counsel, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience toward God until this day. It was the whole course of his life. Now, is there any other way for a Christian to live? Would you like to think that your preacher had a bad conscience? Would you like to think that other Christians, the majority of Christians in this meeting tonight, were living with a bad conscience? No, the general ought to be that we have a good conscience. We can take the hymn book and sing with merriment and joy because we have a good conscience. We can share the Bible and talk the Bible and witness before the world. It's our manner of life, as Paul's was. For Paul, it was also his purpose in ministry. Now, the end of the commandment is charity out of a good heart and of a good conscience and of faith on fiend. So it's valuable. It was also Paul's burden in prayer in Hebrews 13. Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience. Paul guarded it. There's something he got down on his knees, and he valued as he cried to God in prayer. Let me tell you, men and women, you'll never be men and women of prayer with a bad conscience. How could you get through to God if you're not dealing with the issues of your conscience? And I assure you, when you do get on your knees and you begin to get serious in prayer with God, the finger of the Holy Spirit will be on the very thing that troubles your conscience. And your conscience will be more troubled until we deal with it. It was also Paul's argument for Christian baptism. And I come back to 1 Peter 4 here in verse 21. He says, the like figure whereunto even baptism does also now save us. Now, I'm not going to expound this tonight because this is a complicated little passage. Well, I'll come back to it. But I want you to notice that he says, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Why do Christians get baptized? Well, it's an answer of a good conscience toward God. It is our whole profession. We're turning our back on the world. We're receiving our Lord Jesus. We become followers of him. And so it is the answer of a good conscience toward God. Back to verse 16. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you. The Christian's inner agreement, the inner witness to protect against slander is very, very valuable. And so when the storms of the world's hatred, the evil of men blast your testimony and your name, your conscience is your best friend. Now, I have people who come to me in times of trouble and times of hostility against them, and they say, could I be wrong? Pastor, would you sit down with me and open the Bible and show me if I'm doing the wrong thing here? Let me tell you, your conscience is far better at that than I am. Much better at it than I am. 
That's what your conscience is. That's the inner witness of the Spirit of God with your own spirit, testifying right or wrong. And when you are going through the opposition of men, the hatred of the world, to have a good conscience, a peaceful conscience, a quiet conscience, a comforting conscience, it is invaluable, very, very precious. You can bear the insults as the Lord Jesus did. He was the Holy One. And as the Lord Jesus was perfect, yet knew the insults of men, we will be no greater than our Master. We will bear the shame of Christianity. One last thought. I won't take it very far here tonight. Peter says, you can cause men to see Christ when suffering for righteousness. Look at verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Here is Christ-likeness. Now, I, I believe tonight that the vast, vast majority of Christians in this meeting here regularly pray, Lord, make me like my Savior more and more. Well, here's a part of it. The just for the unjust. Christ also once suffered for sins that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. If you're praying tonight that you may be conformed to the likeness of the Lord Jesus, you're going to be brought to know something of this suffering of the Lord. This is not atonement. This is entering into his sufferings, the stigma of Christianity. And that will be your Christ-likeness by enduring quietly, submitting meekly, as your lot, your cross as a Christian, your role in this world to bear the image of the Lord Jesus before the ungodly world. What is a Christian? A Christ one. A Christian is a Christ one. Pointing men to the Savior. And as we pray that, we suffer for righteousness. And I pray tonight you will know the happiness. Now let me know next week how the experiment goes. And I trust that you will truly know the joy, the spiritual joy that the Savior gives by witnessing for him. This broadcast comes to you today from the Free Presbyterian Church in Cloverdale, located at 187-90-58 Avenue, Surrey, at the corner of 188th Street and 58th Avenue. On our website you can find gospel articles, links to our sermons and our gospel booklet called A New Beginning. There you can find a link to our Sunday services, 
that are broadcast online. For all this information, please go to our website at cloverdealfpc.ca. You're warmly invited to attend any of our Sunday services at 10.30am and 6pm to meet with us as we worship God and to hear the preaching of his precious word. We also meet for Bible study and prayer at 7.30pm every Wednesday evening. Our Sunday School for Children and Adult Bible Class meet every Lord's Day from September to June at 9.30am. You can contact us using our office number which is 604-576-1091. Alternatively, you can email me at pastor.cloverdealfpc at gmail.com. Again, for all this information, please go to our website at cloverdealfpc.ca. Our burden is that you will hear and understand the gospel that will lead you to know the Lord Jesus Christ and his great salvation. And this is Pastor Andrew Fitton. Thank you for listening today and be sure to listen Monday to Friday at 5 a.m. and 5 p.m. and on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. on this station for our full or church service as we worship the Lord through the ministry of his word.